0: Well, again, good morning. It's great to see you. I always, you know, time change Sunday. It's like, well, let's see who shows up at 9 o'clock. So it is great to see you. And we will get that hour back later in the year. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to Mark chapter 9 as we continue this study that we've been in of Mark's gospel. You just heard Jen refer to that. So, some of you that are new, thanks for joining us. And we just invite you to jump in as we continue learning who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. So, this morning we're in Mark chapter 9. And to introduce this text, let me just take you back to an experience last summer. Our, our family had the opportunity to spend a few days in Israel and and the next to the last night we were there we were in the city of Lot, which is a city in Israel on the northern shore of the Red Sea and i remember this moment we'd been out all day it was late we had a very late dinner and we're at this restaurant that was right on the edge of the Red Sea right on the water's edge it was it was pitch black but you could you know you could hear the water kind of slapping against the the beach, and you can see the waves close to the shore. But otherwise, it it was dark. And because it was dark, all around the sea, this Red Sea, you could just see lights. And ahead of me, I I could see the lights of the city of a lot. And if I kind of lean back a little bit, just in the distance, I could see lights that were actually coming from the nation of Egypt. And if I turned slightly to my, to my right, and, and in the very distance, you could barely make it out, but there were actually lights from the nation of Saudi Arabia. And then over to my right, I could, I could see lights from Aqaba in Jordan. I remember just sitting here, and you know, just the idea of, of being able to sit in one place and see lights from multiple countries to hear the water hitting against the beach just the kind of the soothing tranquility of that moment and i i remember you know the trips about over and i don't know about you and vacations you just you know those moments you just want to hold on to and i remember sitting at that restaurant i just, I just want to hold on to this and you, you know how do you know because this isn't my everyday experience right i mean normally i go to bed to the lights of south hanover township which in my neighborhood basically just means the security light on my neighbor's garage that goes off when his cat sets off the motion sensor, right? I mean, this was a very different experience, and I just, I just, wanted, to, I just wanted to hold on to it. But of course, just, you know, a day and a half later, we're back in the, the States, and it was life back to normal, back to the everyday, back to the reality, and that moment that I wanted to hold on to was gone. Have you, have you known those moments, those moments you just kind of want to stretch out as long as possible? Maybe it's been a moment on a vacation, or you go to the beach every year, and you know, I just want to hold on to that experience. Maybe it's been a moment when you've been with people, all the people in your life that kind of are important to you, and it's a unique event, some kind of celebration, holiday, birthday, or something, and you just you want to hold on to that. But just like that, it feels like it's gone and, and immediately everyday challenging, complex life kicks back in and, and that moment just kind of slips out of your fingers. If you've known that experience, I think in some sense you could relate to what the disciples are going to experience in one of the scenes we're going to look at today. And, and as we look at the scene, I, I think there, there are lessons for us to learn about what it means to follow Jesus, lessons that the Jesus is teaching the disciples but lessons that also apply to us today. And so with that in mind, let's now come to Mark chapter 9. And as we come to this text, let me set the stage again by reminding you of this. At this point in the story of Jesus, Jesus has now started talking to his disciples very directly, very purposefully, very plainly about the fact that he is about to go to Jerusalem and be arrested and executed by his opponents. And in this middle part of of the book of Mark, you see these very intense conversations that Jesus is having, and and the disciples, they're struggling. They don't don't know how to put it together. He's talking about about execution and then resurrection, and they, they they don't know how this is to make sense, and so they're grappling with that. But in the midst of The start of these very direct conversations, something unexpected happens. And that brings us to the opening part of Mark chapter 9. We'll pick it up in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I notice what Mark adds. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. We refer to this scene as, as the transfiguration, where, where Jesus is transformed right before the very eyes of the disciples. And you know, as I think about telling this story, I think about this from Mark's perspective, how do you communicate that in words? How do you describe the undescribable? How do you describe something you can't fully understand unless you see it firsthand? Well, interestingly, Mark does a couple of things in seeking to communicate this to us. First, he does use concrete language. In fact, in in this text, he actually uses a a technical term for someone who works in clothing, dyeing cloth for a living. So an expanded translation, a part of this passage would be this. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than someone who bleached clothes for a living could ever bleach them. I, it's a very, this, is how, this is how bright, this was the magnificence, the dazzling reality of, of what's going on, that, that no one who even worked in the industry could ever make clothes that bright. So he uses concrete language. But there's another thing Mark does, and I think this is intentional. It's something more subtle. And that is this, I think Mark highlights elements of this scene that will remind us of a certain episode from the Old Testament. Remember the Old Testament book of Exodus. We we have the experience of Moses who in different ways goes up to the mountain to receive God's law. And, you know, we see him going up to the mountain and we see him experiencing God's presence, even to the point of asking to see God's glory. And I think Mark highlights certain aspects of this scene that that will remind us of what has happened in the past. Let me just show you this chart. So, for instance, Mark is specific in telling us that Jesus takes three disciples up the mountain in Exodus 24. Moses goes up the mountain with three named persons plus the elders. Jesus is transfigured. His clothes are radiantly white. I mean, Moses, as he encounters God's glory, his skin shines as he uh, descends from the mountain. God appears in an overshadowing cloud in the transfiguration as well as on Mount Sinai and a voice speaks from the cloud just as we see in Exodus 24. And in highlighting these similarities, I I think what Mark wants us to see is this. For a brief moment, the disciples encountered the glory of Jesus Christ. The curtain was pulled back And they witness him in his true glory, in his majesty, in his power. They witnessed him as the one who truly is the king of kings and lord of lords. Furthermore, notice as they witness the glory of Jesus that they also see Moses and Elijah now, natural question is this, so why, why these two guys? Why did these two guys appear at this moment talking to Jesus? Well, I think a couple of factors may be at work. First of all, you need to understand this. To Jesus' contemporaries... I mean, to, to other people of Israel in this time, as you, as you looked to the future, right, you had some sense of hope. We're, the, we're God's people. One day God is going to intervene. I know we're under foreign domination now. We've got this Roman rule, but, but someday God will intervene to, to restore, to renew, to bring ultimate justice. As you looked to the future with that sense of hope, two figures that could be associated with that hope were Elijah and Moses. Now, we could take time to kind of unpack that. I think one of the reasons that's the case, among others, is this. You get to the end of the book of Malachi, kind of this culmination of the prophets, and, and it, right at the end of Malachi, in Malachi 4, there, as Malachi kind of the prophet is looking to the future, he makes reference to Moses and Elijah. So just in in Jesus' broader experience, when people look to the future, these were two individuals that were associated with that sense of hope. And so as the disciples experience this moment, the fact that they see these two reminds them, I think, of That God has promises that he is fulfilling and God's history is moving toward a particular direction and God will be faithful to bring about that ultimate kingdom, that ultimate reign, that ultimate justice, that ultimate restoration. So these these characters point to the future in a very meaningful way. I think as well, in some sense, as you look at Moses and Elijah here, Moses Moses represents the theme, the traditions of the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. And the fact that they, they are here talking to Jesus <laughs> and then disappear, the fact that they are here is, is a reminder, it's a visible representation of the fact that, that truly the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets aren't ends in themselves. They're moving in a particular direction, and their ultimate fulfillment, their ultimate direction is found in Jesus. Now, Jesus made that claim himself. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Instead, he is saying, I have come to fulfill them. And the, the term he uses for fulfill there is the idea that, that all of the law and all of the prophets point to me. The Old Testament is moving in a particular direction. And the fact that we see Elijah and Moses here is just a visible representation of that. But then they disappear. And Jesus stands before the disciples alone, which I think is a reminder that he is the culmination of God's revelation. He is the culmination of God's plan. Now, as you look at what's happening, notice again Peter's response, right? Peter says, Jesus, it's so good that we are here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then, of course, Mark says, well, he didn't know what he was saying. He was just scared. (laughs) As you look at Peter's response, notice there's a certain tension at work in the text. On the one hand, Mark wants us to know they were were fearful of this experience. And I don't think we can completely understand that unless we were standing there, right? to, To see the reality of Christ in his glory. The beautiness, the perfection, the weightiness, the holiness of that. At one level, it is a terrifying experience. And so we're not surprised that the disciples are afraid. But even even as, notice this, even as Peter is fearful, there's also a sense in which he is being drawn into this moment. He's been drawn into this space because he says, look, it is so good for us to be here. Now, why is that? Well, I think it's this. Peter is drawn to Christ's glory. Now this may sound, this is going to sound very odd, but just hear me out for a moment. This will sound weird, but you and I have been designed for glory. Did you know that? And in the Bible, one one of the ways to think about glory is to think of glory, it's it's the display of excellence, of beauty, of magnificence. And you and I, we've, we've, been, we've been designed, we've been hardwired, we've been created to reflect God's glory into the lives of each other and just back into the world that God has created. In a real sense, we are made for glory. And I think in a real sense, we are, we are in the pursuit of glory because this is intrinsic to our design. And whether you realize it or not, in different ways, your life is shaped by your pursuit of glory, whatever that looks like. Another way of thinking about glory is this, the the Old Testament term that is often used for glory is a term that communicates weightiness, heaviness. And that's weightiness in terms of significance, weightiness and heaviness in terms of value and importance, weightiness and heaviness in terms of things that I adore are pursued. So right now, what is is weighty to you in that respect? What is significant to you? What do you value? What what is weighty at the very core of who you are? That's the glory you're pursuing. And in different ways, our lives are shaped by what we pursue. Of course, we we can pursue glory in a variety of ways. Career, achievement, hobbies, family, success, approval, reputation. Just understand whatever you are pursuing in terms of glory will ultimately shape you along the way. And yet I think the reality is this. If, if I stand for a moment with Peter, and I can't, I, can't, you know, I can't fathom what that experience was like. But if I stand for a moment with Peter, Reflecting on, seeking to comprehend, seeking to understand and experience who Christ is, the wonder, the majesty, the holiness of his character and what he's done. As I stand just for a moment with Peter, the other things that I can pursue in the quest for glory... They, ju- they just begin to fade in significance. They just begin to fade in importance. And so Peter says, it's, it's good for us to be here. So he encounters Jesus' glory. He's fearful and scared, but he is drawn into this moment and it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters. And perhaps by that he means let's build places of worship. But whatever the intent that Peter has here, notice that, that Mark inserts himself into the narrative. He makes an editorial comment as the narrator. Right? He says, he didn't know what to say because they were so frightened. and. I don't know. This this is the point, isn't it? You've got to love Peter. I mean, Peter's the guy in the crowd that always says what other people are thinking but are unwilling to say. Peter's the guy that always has an action orientation. Sometimes he acts first and thinks later. But he's just blurting this out. It's good to be here. And yet Mark is critical. So why does Mark make this editorial comment? Once again, there may be different factors at work, but I think this reason is part of the part of the reality of what Mark's doing. When, when Peter says it's good for us to be here, I think part of what he means is this, let's, let's just stay here, right? Let me, let me just hold on to this moment. Because you see, in a real sense, at this moment, Peter has discovered what he's been created for, right? To experience the glory of God. And he's now experiencing that in a way he's never experienced it before. It's, it's so good to be here. I, I want to hold on to this moment. Let's, let's just stay here. <clears throat> and what Peter is failing to see is this, that Christ hasn't come simply to reveal himself on the mountain. He's ultimately come to go back down into the valley. And ultimately to the cross. And then notice at this point we have the the cloud and the divine voice, listen to him. He's the one whom I love. Now remember once again the broader context. This is taking place in the midst of these ongoing conversations about Jesus' looming execution. And in saying listen to him, I think in a real sense God is saying to Peter, Peter, I know you want to hold on to this moment. But listen to what Jesus is saying. Listen to how my plan will be achieved. Listen to how I will ultimately display my glory, not simply on a mountaintop, but ultimately on the cross. And then just like that, this moment that Peter wants to hold on to passes. And they're standing alone with Jesus. Well, after that moment, they began heading down the mountain. We'll continue in verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Remember, they, they don't really have categories to understand what's about to happen. And then they ask him, why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as is written about him. Now the grammar in this, this part of the story is somewhat complex, but here's what I think is going on. They're coming down the mountain. They're continuing to have these conversations, these hard conversations about what's going to happen, and they don't get it. They don't get this idea of suffering, they don't get the idea of death even rising from the dead. So they're, as they're having having this conversation with Jesus, that you know, it's, yeah, but we just saw Elijah. And their mind goes back to the fact that, you know, for their contemporaries, right, when you thought about the future, you thought about someone coming in the spirit, and the in, in the spirit of Elijah, someone who would remind us of Elijah, and when he comes, that would be a sign that things are being restored. And basically what they're asking Jesus when they talk about Elijah is this. If Elijah really is coming again in some form, why do you need to talk about all this death and suffering and dying stuff? I mean, isn't the fact that Elijah is coming isn't that a sign that all things will be restored? Can't we skip that other stuff you've been talking about? And Jesus says, "Look, you're right. You're right in what you affirm, but you don't understand all the details of the plan. Yes, someone must come in the tradition and the spirit of Elijah. But you also need to understand that as the Son of Man, I must suffer. And that is expected as well. Furthermore, you need to understand that the one coming like Elijah has already come. That was John the Baptist as the forerunner. And don't you remember what happened to him? He was arrested and he was executed. So, guys, you kind of understand some of the plan, but you don't understand all the details. So all of this, all of this, is you know, they're still processing this. And then then notice what happens. Then they get to the bottom of the hill, right? They get to the bottom of the mountain, and chaos and confusion is underway, right? It's one of those scenes you tried to hold on to that moment, that defining moment, that moment you just wanted to stretch out, but... Quickly, it it leaves, and then all of a sudden you're back into reality, and it's complicated, it's confusing, it's chaotic at times, it's fast, it's busy. And all of a sudden, as they come back from this dramatic, amazing moment in the mountain, life goes crazy right in front of them. And we see that as we continue. Verses 14 and following. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Here's what I think happened while Jesus was with his three disciples. Meanwhile, back down below, the other disciples are there, and of course they are crowds, they are people, and of course included in those crowds are, are people that are opponents of Jesus, teachers of the law. And this man brings up his son who's demon-possessed and is experiencing kind of the, the physical results of that demonic possession that are terrorizing him, terrorizing his family. This man brings up his son. He's, he just wants him restored. So the man brings up this son and, and the disciples come in and they they seek to work with him. They seek to re- restore his son to cast out the demon, but nothing happens. Meanwhile, some of the critics come up from the crowd and they begin maybe arguing and debating, challenging the disciples. And all of a sudden, you've kind of got this scrum over here, right? And, and here's this guy just with his his son. So the disciples, the religious leaders are going after it. Who knows what the points of debate and argumentation are. Maybe even how do you exercise a demon? How do you claim to have authority to exercise demon? And they're going at it. And all of a sudden, Jesus and his disciples come down. And, you know, here's this chaos over here. And Jesus, hey, Jesus says, what's going on? And here's this guy. I just, I just came for you to restore my son. And Jesus looks at all of this before him and just says, you unbelieving generation, bring the boy to me. Now, as this scene unfolds, I want you to see the different characters in this closing scene of this part of the book. I mean, look at, let's look at it from different angles. First of all, look at the disciples. Now remember, we've already seen Jesus had already, he commissioned them, he had empowered them, he had sent them out as extensions of his own ministry, right? They had been equipped, commissioned to to preach, to heal, to cast out demons, all of which are signs that God's kingdom was now uniquely at work through Jesus. They had been commissioned to be extensions of that ministry, and, and, and that had already happened. Yet here they couldn't do it. And it's interesting because what happens? They're curious. They're dumbfounded. What happened? What went wrong? And you get to the end of the story. We see this in verses 28 and 29, and, and they ask Jesus in private about this, and he says this. This kind can only come out by prayer, right? Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm a disciple, I'm standing there going, well, what do you mean this kind can only come out by prayer? Because when you read the entire narrative, there's no reference to prayer anywhere in it until right at the very end. I mean, it's a very surprising ending. So what do you mean this kind can only come out by prayer? You didn't pray when you cast out the demon. You know, it's like a kid to a parent. What do you mean I got to do it this way? You don't do it this way. Here's what I think Jesus was getting at. Here's what I think he was saying. Guys, you approached this with the expectation that you could simply do this on your own, right? After all, you have done it before, right? You had the technique down. You know how to do it. And and in referring to prayer, Jesus is saying, you approached this in a self-reliant way. You, You did this without an attitude of trust and dependence. And I think for us, perhaps a simple lesson is this, Sometimes our greatest obstacles in life are our previous successes. Sometimes our greatest obstacles in life are our previous successes because they convince us that we can do life on our own. I know this is a hard relational situation, but you know what? I've dealt with these in the past. I I got this down. I know this is a complicated situation at work, but I've had these in my work experience before. I've got this down. I know this is kind of some kind of hard conversation I need to have with this person, but I got it down. I've done this before. I, I, I got it. I know what to do. And it's great that we're developing skills and expertise and experience. Yet if I'm not careful as a follower of Christ, I can lose sight that I am to engage life as a follower of Christ. I'm to engage life as someone who is seeking to reflect his wisdom, his priorities. Someone who is open to his work and his desires for my life in the midst of these particular situations. So I think in some sense the disciples have been undermined by their previous successes. Now, change the lens slightly as we look at this scene and let's let's now look at this dad, this father. Who brings this boy to Jesus? We pick up the story, right? As Jesus has said, Bring the boy to me, verses 20 and following. So they brought him. And when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And, and Jesus asked the boy's father, how, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Now, as you see this scene unfold, just, just feel the weight that the father is feeling for a moment. Right? First of all, realize he's tired. He's got to be. I mean, he's described, and we've seen it firsthand, the way this demon is terrorizing his son. He had to be watched constantly. You never knew what was going to happen. Think about how exhausting that has been. And we don't know how many years this has been going on, but it's presented as if this isn't something recent. There's there's a history here. So this father is tired. Furthermore, he's desperate. He's discouraged. Right? Because it's so natural if you're a parent, part of what you want, you want to protect your children. And one of the most discouraging things as a parent, one of the most demoralizing things as a parent is finding yourself in situations where you want to but you can't. Some of you have known situations with a child where, you, for instance, you went through a complicated medical situation. There wasn't a clear diagnosis, no simple treatment plan. And, and this is just a sense of desperation that can come with that, a sense of helplessness that comes with that. oh, here's this dad, weighed down by all of this, bringing his son to Jesus. And I love it. Notice how Jesus interacts with him, right? Jesus enters into the story in a very simple way. So tell me how long this has happened. And that draws draws the dad out even more, doesn't it? It's interesting, right? We've just seen Jesus reveal his glory on the mountain, but now he is entering into the very messiness of life. And as the conversation continues, pay attention to what the Father says specifically. I think the wording is significant here because notice this. He says, if you can take pity, or perhaps a better translation would be this, if you, could, if you can show compassion on us. Now pay attention to that wording Because can I suggest to you that when we find ourselves in the complexities of life, when we find ourselves in the messiness of life, particularly for those of us who are followers of Christ, there are two themes here, two questions that the dad asks that are running right below the surface for you and me as well. And those two questions, those two themes are these. Is he able? Does he care? Is he able does he care? Right? If you are able, have compassion. Now, we may not ask those questions out loud, but can I suggest to you just to be aware of the reality that in, when, in the complexity, sometimes the strain, the, the busyness of life, the hardships of life, the challenges of life, Those questions are running right below the surface of your life. Is he able? Does he care? And, of course, then Jesus responds, if you can? What do you mean, if you can? Everything is possible for the one who believes. Now this isn't an open-ended promise that as long as I believe hard enough, anything will happen. Rather, I think it is it's an affirmation that Jesus is worthy of our complete trust. He is able, he does care. And when the when the father hears that, he says, (laughs) right, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Once again, contrast the two scenes, right, we've just experienced. It's one thing, right, it's one thing to be on that mountaintop, and it's like Jesus is all I see, and at times some of us have had those experiences, to marvel at Jesus in in such an amazing way, but it's, it's another thing to be in the valley. It's another thing to be in the messiness of life. It's another thing to stand with it instead and say, okay, I see you, Jesus, but I also see what our family's gone through. I see you, Jesus, but I also see the way this experience has tormented our lives for years. I see you, Jesus, but I also see how helpless and demoralized and demeaned I felt over this experience. And so in all honesty, the man says, I believe. (laughs) Help me overcome my unbelief. He's he's simply honest with Christ, right? I see this, but I also see this. And for many of us, I think this is where we sometimes find ourselves. And when you find yourself here, you may also find yourself beating yourself up, right? We find ourselves here. I see, okay, Jesus, I'm a follower of Christ. I know that. But these circumstances. And it's often this this point, maybe we beat ourselves up. You know, I wish I had more faith. I've been a follower of Christ for so many years. I should have more faith by now. We even may think, if, if my faith's not perfect, I must not have any faith at all. I've got doubts, I must not have any faith at all. My faith isn't strong, I must not really have faith yet. Remember, as we've already seen in this book, the issue is not the strength of my faith, but its object. And what I love about this scene is it's, it's like Jesus is just drawing this guy in. In the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of, yeah, his faith's not perfect. He's got all kinds of doubts and questions the, the heaviness of experience, and he's honest about that. But he's here, isn't he? Jesus is just drawing him in to take the next step. Jesus is drawing him in. You can trust me. I am able. I do care. And it's in the midst of that imperfect faith that Jesus heals his son, that the demon is exercised, the son is restored. And the reality is, for you and for me, I think sometimes we have this vision. Well, following Jesus, it's, all gonna, it's always going to be on that mountaintop. And, but the reality is that so much of life is lived in the valley. So much of life is lived in the reality of, okay, Jesus, I see you, but I also see this. Jesus, I see you, but I see this crazy busy schedule that I have that can make it hard to really take you seriously. Jesus, I see you, but right now I'm dealing with this workplace situation and it is really weighty. It is really weighing me down. Jesus, I see you, but I also see these other ways to live life and and so often they really make sense to me. So often they are deeply attractive to me. Jesus, I see you, but you don't understand what's going on in my family. Jesus, I see you, but I don't know how to move forward in this relationship. And at those moments, we can just get stuck with, I must not have any faith at all. What's the point? But it's in those moments that Jesus is also drawing us in. It's in those moments that Jesus is wanting us to see that he is worthy. It's in those moments that Jesus is wanting to see that, us to see that he is able and he does care. It's in those moments, and maybe you're at one of those moments right now where we need to stand with this dad and simply say, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we do come to this text, we we see just the wonder of the transfiguration. We can't even... Father, if we're honest, we can't even fathom or imagine exactly what that was like. To be drawn into the reality of your presence and your glory. And we we read that, and hopefully it stirs within us a certain anticipation about the new heavens and the new earth. Yet in the meantime, we live so much of life in the valley. Father, we live so much of life where it's like, yeah, okay, I see Jesus, I'm a follower of Christ, I get that, but I also see this other stuff. And Father, I pray that in the midst of those moments, we wouldn't simply stop. I pray that we would hear Jesus simply calling us further in, calling us further in on this journey of following, calling us further in on this journey as a disciple, calling us further in because he is able and he does care. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.